Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's episode, I'm interviewing Joyce McCall. Joyce and I have been friends and colleagues for several years as we both went to the same doctoral program at Arizona State University. She's now a music education professor in Illinois. All right, now you might be wondering why I'm having a music education professor come on this podcast. The reason why is because Joyce is an expert at issues around race and racism in education. So this particular episode discusses the importance of allies not only showing up to support marginalized or oppressed groups, but staying when the conversations get uncomfortable. Joyce also unpacks some theories such as critical race theory, double consciousness, cultural capital, hegemony, etc. So for example, she provides a brilliant metaphor for the Shire from the Lord of the Rings as a metaphor for hegemony and systemic racism. As always, you can find a link to the show notes in the app that you're listening to this on, which includes several links to scholars that Joyce recommends for learning more about anti-racist practices, critical race theory, and more. I hope you get as much out of this interview as I did. I really enjoyed this interview with Joyce and believe there's a ton of important information in here and in the show notes that can help CS educators. With that being said, we're now going to begin with Joyce introducing herself. Joyce McCall, I am an assistant professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I just finished my second year. My work has to do with looking at topics in, on race, class, culture, and using various theoretical frameworks such as critical race theory, double consciousness theory. So I guess how I started this work or how I was inspired to do this work has a lot to do with my experience as a Black female growing up in this country and being a part of school music and seeing that I was always pretty much one of few or the only in my school bands. And also even when I was in the military, served for 14 years in the army bands, I was oftentimes the only black female in the unit or one of few black folks in the unit. So yeah, it inspired me to do this this work, and especially as a teacher. I taught in Houston, Texas as an assistant band director at MacArthur High School in Aldine Independent School District. It's a predominantly Latinx school district. And it was there especially that I was compelled or moved to go and pursue a PhD in music education because I realized just how messed up the system was planned or was situated to work, you know, to marginalize certain people and raise other people up. And I wanted to find a way to sit at the table to create change. And now that I'm sitting at the table, the table is really hard to sit at sometimes because the folks at the table, if they move very slow or there are people at the table who have no intention of any sort of movement. So they're there to hold up progress, you know. And so I say it's, it's really challenging to sit at the table. And sometimes I ask myself, well, is it worth sitting at this table? Should I go and sit at another table or build my own table or just not sit at the table? Right. You have to have a gig in higher ed or wherever to do this sort of work. And the reason why I haven't said social justice work is because people wear it out. And that term has become pretty stale over the years, even though that's what, essentially what we're doing. Yeah, I teach a couple courses here at Illinois, Jazz Methods. This course called Social Foundations. It's a sophomore course for undergrad music ed students. And it's basically looking at various socio-cultural groups and issues and situating all of that within the music classroom. 
And I also teach a class called Transformative Topics for, for graduate students. And the most recent course, well, the course that I created, is called Social Transformation, Technology, and Music. And so we're looking at all of these issues in the world, situating them within music, but using theoretical frameworks or no frameworks at all and saying, well, what are these issues? How can we, not just music education people, but performers and music theorists, music industry people. I've even had a couple students in that class from, from social sciences, from drafting, and one student from engineering. And so, yeah, that, those are just a few things about me. So can you tell me a story about an experience in education that continues to impact you? I can tell you one story that has always stayed with me and that really shook me up a bit, even though the situation wasn't foreign to me. So I was teaching in Houston, Texas at MacArthur High School. Well, it was just after the school day had ended and I was preparing, just like any other marching band person, preparing to head out to the field, you know, grabbing my water bottle, wrapping up a few emails, grabbing my baseball cap. And so this student walks in, who's just an outstanding student. She was an IB student, had like a 4.7 GPA already. And she came into the, the office and said, hey, miss, I can't come to rehearsal today. And I'm talking to her while I'm, you know, grabbing my things, dealing with the computer, putting files away so I can head out to the field. And I'm like, no, no, you'll figure it out. You'll be there because this student never missed a rehearsal. Right. So she was like, no, miss, I can't come. I can't come to rehearsal. She's a soft spoken person. And I was like, no, you'll be there. And all of a sudden she raised her voice and yelled at me. And that was completely out of her personality. It was totally, totally different. I stopped in my tracks and I turned around and this kid, tears were just pouring down her face. She had cuts on her face, like a busted lip. Her face was black and blue. And I said, who did this to you? And she's like, miss, I can't tell you. I just need, I, I need to go home. I said, well, you know, were you in a fight? Did you get jumped? Things of that sort. She's like, Miss, I just can't tell you. And I said, well, we can't leave without you telling me. She went to explain to me as I closed the door to my office that her mom did that to her. Like her mom beat the crap out of this kid because she was actually trying to save her mom's life because her mom was going to commit suicide. And to save her mom, she called 911 and her mom beat her. And when she told me that, it took everything within me not to go and find her mom and beat the hell out of this woman. Everything surging through me. But then I had to like find a way to calm myself down because I'm like, I got to tend to the student and see what's up. What can I do? And yada, yada, yada. But I was so furious at the situation. But then, too, I realized, you know, I got to help this student. I said, well, we need to go talk to the counselor. At first, I mentioned the principal. She was like, no, 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 no. She started to freak out. And so I said, well, you know, let's go talk to the counselor. And and so we went to the counselor and I said, hey, can we come in and, and chat with you? So we went in and I told her, I said, well, I asked the student, I said, well, do you mind if I 
share the story with, you know, my colleague and she, she agreed and I told her what happened. And of course the counselor said, well, you know, we have to call DHS. And of course the student was like, no, 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 we're going to put my mom in jail. You know, that's any kid's concern about it. So I said, well, maybe DHS will find a way to help your mom, but we got to get you out of this situation. And eventually, you know, over the course of a couple days, a few days, we were able to get the student out of the situation. But the challenge was, was that she would have to change schools and she would go and live with her dad just outside of Houston. And she didn't want to do that because, of course, she had made friends and she loved being in the band program. It was horrible. But she got the help that she needed. Fast forward a year later, I'm at a marching band festival, of course. Somebody tapped me on my shoulder. And it was the student who I had helped the year before. She was at the competition to support her band colleagues in the band. And she had a poster and everything. She had this huge smile on her face. And she came up and she said, hey, miss, I just wanted to come up and thank you for saving me. And I swear, Jared, it took everything within me not to break down in that in that moment, because I remember going through some crap in my own home, but no one at school knew, no one at school bothered to ask, and no one kind of, you know, no one stepped in to quote unquote save me. And so it was that experience as well as a whole lot of others while teaching that made me throw my philosophy of teaching in the trash. (laughs) (laughs) It made me just completely do this huge turnaround and say, you know, at the end of the day, what we do as music educators or as musicians or whatever the case may be, is not really about the music. It really, really isn't. I mean, the music is one of many tools that we use to create community, to create a sense of belonging and opportunities to create and innovate. But at the end of the day, especially in music education, it's not about the music. It just happens to be one of the many products that we create through our interactions with students and colleagues. And so that experience, as well as a wealth of others while teaching, really gave me the sort of encouragement, but also a platform, a real platform from which I could speak to because that platform I knew very well because of my own story. I could speak from that platform in a real way. And I felt like not a lot of people could speak to it or not a lot of people really wanted to speak to it. That story and many others were the sort of gears that create shifts in my career and even how I think about music education. It's wonderful to have that kind of impact. And it's definitely relatable in terms of you expressing that you went through similar experiences and being able to help and identify with that. Like myself being chronically depressed and suicidal, like being able to identify kids who are struggling through depression and suicidality because I've been through it as well. It's been one of those things where it's like, I wouldn't wish depression or suicidality on anyone, but I've been able to help out kids with it. And that has been invaluable. And I totally understand the importance of working with kids one-on-one and just meeting them where they're at, mentally, emotionally, etc. in that moment. It's not about the content. It's about helping individuals. 
So what about with your research? So your research areas have been about basically helping marginalized communities and whatnot, specifically around race. How has your research kind of informed or impacted your understandings of education? Well, I think it's two-pronged, my response. One in that it has helped to, I guess, confirm that education has not done its job or so many people who have had the opportunity to create equitable spaces and to provide a socially just experience for all students. A lot of people have failed in that. Like, for instance, even my dissertation, when I looked at African-American students moving from a historically Black college undergraduate music program to a graduate music program at a predominantly white institution, in the 21st century, a lot of, well, actually all the participants in that study encounter overt racism, you know, in the 21st century. And I think, like, when you mentioned that, you know, a lot of people assume that we're still in the post-racial era, and particularly when President Obama was elected. Participants in that study were in graduate school when President Obama was president. Here these, these Black men are negotiating racist structures, but also racist behaviors from their white peers and faculty. And so I think my research confirms a lot of the things that either A, I myself have experienced or observed, or read about. But then also, I think the other piece of my research, I think it has impacted or compelled some people in the profession to reflect and to create some waves of change, whether it's in their own classroom or how they talk about race or how they engage racially minoritized populations. I wish my research could do a, a bit more because I'm, one of the things that I really am working on, even when I speak to universities or whomever, is to push them to act because I feel like, you know, a lot of research is is situating along the line of starting points. And I feel like we've been at the starting point for too long on race and racism in this country. And so pushing people to think about initiatives and strategies that are anti-racist, to look at all the forms of racism, right? And not just the individual or interpersonal racism, but the structural and institutional stuff. We'll see if this is still the case like a year and five years from now, but it seems like we're we're at an awakening point where people are starting to realize we need to learn more and engage in discussions on anti-racism in particular. So hopefully like things are getting better. One thing that I would argue against though is like you'd mentioned that the schools are like designed to be like uh, promote equity and whatnot, but I think it's also designed to oppress people. And like one easy way to look at that is like what we've historically done to American Indian or indigenous populations where like we were quote trying to civilize the savages. And there's a lot of research on this that has been done that has talked about like basically we took kids off the reservation and tried to made them white, make them white. And there's tons of research out there on that if people are listening to this and are, are confused about it i'll put some in the show notes it's like on one hand we say yeah we want to be equitable and like we want to do these like great things and promote this like good things for society and people but on the other hand we're gonna oppress you and make you do things our way yeah it's like you do it our way and that's you know that's one of the things that i that i've mentioned here at illinois you know people always talk about diversity and heck even when i was at indiana a lot of institutions are so quick to, you know, diversity, 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 recruitment, recruitment. And I'm just like, 
yeah, you seeing diversity, but it's all about how you want it. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you want it? And it's very controlled. So I agree with you. I mean, even looking at historically black colleges and universities, I think Cheney University was the first one in 1837, roughly 200 years after Harvard. And when they were allowed to create these institutions, they didn't have the same curriculum as Harvard. Why? Because the folks who were in these schools were newly freed from enslavement, where they were not empowered to read or write or to do anything close to that deemed to be sort of Mm education-like. Many of these schools started out, HBC started out as a, might as well say the equivalent to kindergarten, teaching people how to read and write, but also etiquette and how to assimilate into a predominantly all-white American society. Right. Education in this country is all within certain parameters. And when you you know, bust outside of those parameters, it's trouble. It's incredible. Look at the curriculum at any university. You can look at our curriculum at Illinois. Many of my colleagues here agree. It's very rooted in Western art music and everything else outside of that is not necessarily of importance. Like a class is probably deemed an elective unless you are majoring in a particular sort of music. So if you're majoring in jazz, more than likely you're going to take jazz classes. And jazz is a Black art form. But how many other people would actually take that course? Right. Or be told that they need to take that course? Not many. It's unreal. But we call ourselves music schools, schools of music. But only one music is elevated. Yes. Which is an extremely important point that I don't think most people realize. One of your comments about how HBCUs were teaching etiquette and whatnot in order to like assimilate, it's also not just like the ways that you behave and interact within predominantly white society, but it's also just like the natural ways of being, like Mm -hmm. the embodied things that natural hair, how workplaces will put a ban on stuff like that. And it's just like those little things it's like wait so you're saying my natural way of being is not allowed here what does that say about what you think about me and how i am as a person or who i am yeah i mean for instance like my years in the military for black women even now there are certain hairstyles we cannot wear like cornrows they have to be a specific size and a specific this and that but white women in the military they will throw some cornrows in their hair easily. When I got into the military and basic training, we were told to wear underwear based off of our skin complexion. I joined the military in 1999. Black women had to wear certain, at least this is what our drill sergeant told us, black women had to wear specific underwear, a certain color. And then white women had to wear white underwear and bras. Why? I don't know. No explanation, just this is what you're doing? Yeah, no explanation. Because two, none of us were going to push against it because the majority of folks who enlist in the military are usually like 17, 18, 19 years old. Right. At the time, I was 17, and I'd never forget that. So it's just how you are, like you say, your natural way of being is not acceptable for the status quo. When we look at colorism, 
you know, skin complexion, skin tones. And that is a direct product of racism. Yeah. How people see themselves. And so even in the Black community, like my skin complexion would be acceptable because my skin complexion is considered to be light-skinned. There was the brown bag paper test. Right. And they placed the brown bag next to your skin. And if, if you were that color or lighter, then you were considered to be beautiful and smart and you had social access and all these things. But if you were darker, then your access to various things were pretty limited. Everything is so related and interwoven. Racism is so endemic in American culture. It's, it's unreal. Yeah, I mean, another example, it's only in the last few years that the so-called skin tone band-aids and makeup actually are not just white now. Like, it includes other colors other than variations of shades of white. Yeah, it's crazy. I think it was the Rockets. Yeah. They just now recently, within the last few years, have allowed women of color to have the same skin tone as their bodies with the stockings. And the argument was, you know, we have to have uniformity, but it's like, okay, everybody's legs are the same. But then when you go up to their face, you have white women and you have women of color. It's crazy. The excuses right? to ask someone to not be themselves. At the beginning, you had mentioned that like two of the primary theories that you've worked with is critical race theory and double consciousness. How would you explain both of those to a novice and like how they kind of inform your own understanding of education? That's a good question. And I think it's totally fair and it should be asked all the time because I think some of us, some scholars and academics, you know, assume that everybody is going to know what we're talking about. Critical race theory is basically a tool, a theoretical framework, if you will. It's the lens that we use to analyze, look at and assess and examine racialized structures, attitudes and behaviors. So actually critical race theory, it began to emerge through critical legal studies in the 1970s. And it also served as a response to the incremental approaches of the civil rights movement. Because a lot of people were saying, you know, the civil rights movement, even though that was progress, it was very slow. And through critical legal studies, it was this guy by the name of Derrick Bell, who's no longer with us. He's considered to be the father of critical race theory. He used things like storytelling to educate white folks about the experience of black folks in America. And so eventually it emerged to an actual theory and into education. So there are a few tenets or rationales to support critical race theory. So a couple of them includes one, racism is real. It's not abnormal. It is very much a part of the American culture. Then there's another one called storytelling or naming one's own reality, using storytelling to inform, using storytelling to create counter narratives, narratives of other folks or dominant individuals. And so, for instance, decades ago, when Black folks were allowed to speak in court, their testimonies were often very much controlled. And sometimes they weren't even allowed to give testimony. But through testimony, or as Derrick Bell and critical race theorists call storytelling, they're able to, one, identify racist structures, but also name their origins and the perpetrators. In other situations, they would not be able to do that. 
And so this whole push to to look at racism far beyond the surface. I see critical race theory as a lens or a high-powered microscope to look at racism far beyond the surface. Because sometimes when people think about racism, even now, they tend to think about racism from 1960s, white crazy men on their horses with hoods. What's funny is that there still are (laughs) these white crazy men on horses in the 21st century, riding through downtown, you know, these small towns and whatnot, or even recently like at what the capital of Michigan right. for COVID. But it's looking at deep into the structure. When I think about the structure, I think of it in terms of a matrix, like the movie, The Matrix, and all these layers of information and intersections of identity and discourse and things of that sort. I'm curious, like, how does that inform your approach to education? Because like, having done some critical analyses of things, I see so many problems in education, and sometimes it can be overwhelming. Like with the pre-service and in-service teachers that you're working with, how do you help them understand critical race theory and like its implications as educators? Yeah, so I actually, sometimes I'll use case studies. Mm-hmm you know, stories of others or stories that I wrote, or I'll actually tell stories or even allow, give folks in the class to share stories. And we will sit there and we will pick apart or deconstruct these stories Mm. and analyze them. And like I said, with my explanation of critical race theory, use these rationales or aspects of critical race theory to look very deeply and intently at each incident in one, naming its origins, locating perpetrators, but also coming back and saying, well, how can you, as a music educator, future teacher, how can you become adept to being able to identify these things long before they become an incident or to identify attitudes? How can you situate your own space in terms of every student being able to feel empowered, whether that has to do with how you decorate your classroom. You know, if you're just putting up these white composers who, by the way, have been dead for centuries, or you're elevating a certain particular sort of music, I use stories or case studies, or sometimes I'll actually pull research from other scholars like Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings is one of them. Dr. Adrian Dixon, she's here at the University of Illinois. Kimberly Crenshaw, Victor Delgado, Richard Serlazano, Terrioso. But I try to use storytelling, at least to me, that seems to be one of the most accessible ways you can get people to listen and hone in on. You know, storytelling has always been one of these wonderful cultural artifacts for any culture to share information, to inform, to warn, to provide survival techniques and strategies. We problematize that stuff in the classroom, but also I create scenarios on the fly. Like I'll post something on Blackboard. I'll post a scenario and they will have to immediately respond within 24 hours. Instead of giving them like a whole week or two weeks to respond, I force them to respond to a scenario really quickly. I mean, essentially, that's how it's going to happen in the classroom. 
Right. It's not going to happen in slow motion racism. It's always like at the drop of a hat. And two, most people aren't able to even identify racist incidents. Right. Either one, because they are on the privileged end of, of race, or perhaps their understanding of race and racism is so limited and so sparse. I try to make it as real as possible. That in itself is a challenge because too, we have a lot of white students here who are uncomfortable with just the word white, let alone (laughs) engaging in conversations about race. And so that's actually been one of my most challenging experiences as a teacher educator in this work is helping or encouraging white students to get outside of their box. Majority of students we get here are from the Chicago suburbs. In terms of like Black students, for instance, 3.2% of our students here at the School of Music are Black. It's very small. So what about double consciousness theory? How would you describe that to somebody who's unaware of it? Yeah, so double consciousness theory is a theory by W.E.B. Du Bois. Some scholars have actually deemed him as the father of critical race theory, sort of like the grandfather. Du Bois actually formed his theory based off of his own experiences as an African-American in this country and his observations of other African-Americans. That theory suggests that he says that because of the color line or because of racism, Black folk have to see themselves through two different modes of consciousness through their own eyes, how they see themselves, but they also have to know how white folks or white America see them. And so you're operating in the world with this double consciousness. So how I would explain that is some people will say it's code switching, but it's not code switching, at least for me, is a byproduct of double consciousness. It is an act that one uses to negotiate the color line. But it's like, You are aware of what's going on in the world, but you also have to be super aware of how the world sees you even when they don't say anything. I'm curious. So so like as a kind of a a follow-up question to dive deeper, how does double consciousness kind of relate to cultural capital and community cultural wealth? Cultural capital is capital that only a select few can obtain. It is the information, the codes, the or the objects one acquires or inherits that they can use to climb the ladder of social mobility. It is also access. So for instance, like a second or third generation college student might have more access, more access to codes and meanings and cognitive maps and how to negotiate just applying to go to college. Whereas if you look at a first generation college student, they probably won't have that information because one, their parents didn't go to college, their grandparents didn't go to college. And so the question becomes, well, they go to college, they applied and they did all these things. How were they able to do that? Because cultural capital suggested by Bordeaux suggests that only white European descendants from middle to upper class majority have access to cultural capital. So individuals, who are not members of that group, Terrioso suggests that those individuals, people of color, obtain cultural capital in a number of ways, but also they have their own culture. I echo her 
is that people of color, we have our culture. The problem is, is that the dominant space sees what we bring to the table as deficient. For instance, so I had a student who could play his butt off, he's a guitarist. He actually won a stellar award. He could play anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything. He was raised in the Black Baptist Church. And in the Black Baptist Church, it's not just about reading music. It's more so about your ears. Right. It's about responding to modulations, key changes, all these things at the drop of the hat. Well, here's the thing. This student didn't read music. And so, but a lot of Black kids were raised in the Black church. That was their music education, right? But here you have a student, like I mentioned, who played the guitar, who could hear anything and play it back. He wanted to go to college. He wanted to major in music. He actually wanted to go to UNT. The problem with that is that in order to get into any institution in this country, you got to be able to read music. And majority of kiddos who apply to these schools are not only white students, but they have that cultural capital. And the cultural capital in this case is being able to read notation, westernized notation. And so I think going back to the double consciousness piece, these, I believe, racist structures through the use of using certain pieces of information as a means to keep people out and to welcome people in is a form of racism. Mm -hmm. And so when, when a person like myself or the young man who I was talking about, the guitarist, we come up to apply, it's like, not only do we have to, not only do we see ourselves, our own culture, but we also see how the world sees our culture. Yeah. And minimizes it. But I believe that because we live in this very racist society, in this country that was actually built off of the, the notion of race, we grew up in it. And so we recognize it. We've learned to, to see both sides of the world in order to survive. I think it was Andrew Hacker. He was an economist. He was actually talking about how parents have to have a conversation with their kids. And that's been recent in the news to talk about racism, to talk about how the world is going to see you. Even though if you work hard, you can, hell, you can be the president of the United States. And the many, many people, many occupants in the world or social agents in the world are going to see you as deficient. And there's this quote that he says, it says, there will be the perplexing and equally painful task of having to explain to your children why they will not be treated as other Americans, that they will never be altogether accepted, that they will always be regarded warily, if not with suspicion or hostility. When they ask whether this happens because of anything you have done, you must find ways of conveying that no, it is not because of any fault of their own. Further, for reasons you can barely explain yourself, you must tell them that much of the world has decided that you are not and cannot be their equals, that this world wishes to keep you apart, a caste that will neither absorb nor assimilate. You will tell your children this world is wrong, but because that world is there, they will have to struggle to survive with the scales weighted against them. They will have to work harder and do better, yet the results may be less recognition and reward. We all know that life is can be unfair for Black people. This knowledge is not an academic theory, but a fact of daily life. I would go on record and say, 
if not all, most Black American kids have been told early on, here's this thing that's going to happen. You're not going to know why. It's going to be really weird and it's going to hurt. But just know it's not going to be your fault. And I think Black folks in America, we learn to negotiate this thing called double consciousness or we anticipate it. We just don't know when it's going to happen. It happens every day, the thousand daily cuts of it. And so if I was talking to somebody outside of music about this sort of work, double consciousness exists according to Du Bois and even according to myself. It exists because racism exists. Right. The color line exists. And, and until we address that, uh, this, this experience, this two-ness that we experience will continue on. And it's not just Black folk. It's all people of color experience this in a number of ways. Double consciousness is not something that I, as a white individual, like was even aware of. And like the only similar experience that I can think of is like the last 10 years I've lived in a, a neighborhood, a part of town that is predominantly Latinx. And when I like go grocery shopping or hang out with my neighbors or whatever, like that is the only time that I'm aware of like anything that sounds like double consciousness. And up until that point, it's just, it wasn't something that I thought about. It's one of those things where it's like, I want to learn more about this because I find problems with this. And so I'm wondering what advice would you give for other educators who are trying to learn more about stuff like double consciousness or just trying to understand that there are forms of violence and oppression kind of like built into education and like how can educators like then problematize that and then seek to change that? I just had a conversation. I hosted this talk on like what are the next steps towards realizing equality and justice for all, particularly for the white students and my white colleagues here at Illinois in the School of Music. And one of the things that that is the most accessible way of addressing what you just said is having conversations with people. Right. It seems simple because it is simple. <laughs> I tell students all the time, when you come into class, you know, you guys always act like you're down for the cause and Black Lives Matter. But even in class, you won't even sit by someone else you've never sat by before. My thing is like challenge your comfort level. Have conversations with folks in your community. Like where you live, I'm sure you have conversations with people who either A, don't look like you, B, probably have a different story or have a different reality. I think it is in those moments, in those opportunities where people can get to know what the reality is for their fellow neighbor. Right. It's really simple. And what's really funny is like, when I say that to people, they're like, well, what else we need to do? I'm like, that's what you need to do, silly man. <laughs> and I think people are afraid to do that because in this country, you know, our culture is very much like you have to have your own space. You stay over there. I stay over here. But if you go to Europe, even on the train, random people will sit next to you because they need that seat. They're not going to stand up and say, oh, I don't want to sit next to that person because that's a white person or that's a person who's Muslim. No, it's because I'm going to sit here because this seat is open. But here in this country, you can walk into a Starbucks and there are so many open chairs. But if there's one person at that table, no one's going to sit there. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that like ridiculous? But I think it's about 
really and truly, if you're in a grocery store, I do this all the time. If somebody's in front of me, I'll actually talk to them. You know, I ask questions. It's kind of hard to do that in the Midwest because the Midwest is a little different. <laughs> it's a simple suggestion and solution, but it's also a complicated one. Like as an example of why I think it's complicated, especially online. Yeah. I, it was like a week ago, somebody had posted something about a political party and somebody commented the disagreeing, basically suggesting we should have a civil war to get rid of that political party. And like when I tried to engage in a conversation, like why do you think it's justifiable to murder a significant portion of our population because we can't have conversations and they just resorted to name calling and calling me a wimp and whatnot. So like mm-hmm. on one hand, it's very easy to reach out to people, but on the other hand, like even just basic conversations like could turn into forms of violence. Well, yeah, that's true. But also one of the things that I talk about in even the sophomore class that I teach here And we talk about this. I say, you know, there will be times where no one, where that individual will not want to hear what you have to say. Well, because they just don't want to hear it. And you either A, have to make a choice like, okay, I reached my limit with this person. Okay. And then move on to another person. Right. Because more than likely, there are more people out there who are more willing to engage in conversation identifying the similarities and differences between the two of you, then there are people who just want to be violent and ignorant. That's a great point. The example that I gave was definitely on an extreme end of the continuum in terms of responses. (laughs) Yeah. And and there are folks who don't want to engage because they seem like the topic is just so cliche or we've been on this topic forever. One of the things that I have working for me is like, I'm an army veteran. A lot of the veterans, not all of them, some of them are, are really staunch Republicans. So much so, they're the people who are out there with long guns and M4 carbines protesting COVID. Some of those individuals, I've actually had the opportunity to have a conversation with. And because I have the cachet of, I'm an Army vet. That capital, right. Yeah, I served in the 36th Infantry Division Band in Austin. And so... I try to find these pieces of common ground, and sometimes there isn't, but I think those are opportunities to establish empathy. The other part of your question was, well, how do you problematize those situations or those efforts in the classroom? I'm all about examining things, you know, and then posing more questions. Well, what would this be like if this happened? Just looking at all sides of it. But I think the most accessible way is is having conversations with folks, but also challenging yourself to, to educate yourself. Now, you're an individual. I don't think I would ever have to say that to you. I'm assuming that this is your way of life. And, and this is another piece that I tell people. To do this work, to, to be empathetic, and to be real about it, it is a way of life. Like, I can sit here and talk to, to white people all day about culturally relevant pedagogy, critical race theory, double consciousness, blah, 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 blah. But if their heart is not there, if, if that's not a part of their personality and who they are to their core, if it doesn't happen, I can't be broken up about it. To me, it's really simple. And I get it that sometimes you might encounter folks who will pose questions 
like this civil war thing that you mentioned. And I've gotten into shouting matches with folks a few years ago, particularly when Georgia allowed, when they gave the okay for the Confederate flag as an option for your license plate. What? Yeah, it was, it must have been one, two, three, maybe four or five years ago. And I post my critique on social media and one of my fellow, well, yeah, fellow army buddies chimed in and she was like, well, I'm surprised you're educated and you need to go read a book. The response usually is, oh, it's not about racism. The Confederate flag is not about racism. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, it is. And however, that flag had several iterations of that flag prior to the one that is currently used now, that battle flag. So, I mean, I've gotten into arguments, but now I don't argue with people. If, If I see where, you know, we're not jiving, I have to be okay with it and move on because otherwise it's going to suck you up. It's going to discourage you. And it's going to, in many ways, it can make you bitter and work against what you're trying to do. What about educators like who want to become better allies for historically marginalized and oppressed groups, whether it's based on race, gender, religion, whatever? Do you have suggestions for that? We talk about allyship again in that course, in the two courses that I that I teach, and how does one become an ally? I'm very much about people standing alongside others and helping them to fight whatever fight they need to fight. Because I think sometimes, particularly since we're talking about race, what usually happens with many of our white allies, they don't know how to balance taking the initiative versus seeking counsel that they are attempting to help. And so I think part of that has to do with people just want to jump in and go. And some of that has to do a little bit with privilege and that, you know, white folks can, can do a lot without much consequence. But Black folks, we have to be strategic and things of that sort. So when we look at the civil rights movement, even when we look at the Black Panther Party or the Nation of Islam, very strategic. And when white folk were welcome to assist, they were informed in how to do that. And so I think nowadays, some people tend to just jump out there and go, and that can be very detrimental to the cause or it can slow up the process. So one of the things that I often talk about is saying, hey, with an ally, it's about standing firm next to or alongside these individuals and being there for whatever support they need and being able to be adaptive, flexible, but also the other piece of it is being willing to just listen. Yeah. And I think that's really hard for people to do, especially when they've always had voice. Yeah. One of the things that I actually sort of really tagged into a fellow white colleague in music education, she's no longer with us, but I said, you know, one of the most frustrating pieces about social justice work especially in music education, is that many of the white academic scholars in music ed, they're just talking and talking for us. You never asked us what we wanted. It's like building a playground 
in the community without ever asking the community what it wants. But yet you go and you put up tennis courts and ultimate frisbee, frisbee equipment and things of that sort when that's not even things that they're interested in. And you wonder why those things were abandoned. It is because you never asked. So I would say one, balance taking initiative and seeking counsel. Two, listen. <laughs> and three, I would say, which is even more important, is staying when it becomes uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm finding that a lot of my white colleagues tend to sort of turn it off when it's uncomfortable. Well, white folks have light switches right? in this instance. You can turn it off and turn it on and you can leave the room and take a break and, you know, press pause. But my thing is like, stay, even when it's uncomfortable, even when you feel like, dang, what am I here for? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you have to understand it's not about you. We're not here to attack white folks. We're here to attack the system. And to combat the system and the very thing that has oppressed us and has created, has allowed racism to be America's most successful story. Yeah, but it feels like attacking white people because the system was designed to privilege and elevate white people. So like, it's this conflation. It's like, look, we're not attacking you as an individual. We're attacking the system. And yes, it's helping you, but it's also really messing up other communities and putting the them at disadvantages. Yeah. So those are just three things, you know, balance of initiative and seeking counsel. Two, silence. Three, stay in it. Do not leave. That's one of the things that killed Michael Butera, besides what he said in NAFME. I don't know if you recall what he mentioned in a meeting. He was the former president of NAFME. Yeah, which is the National Association for Music Education. It's like equivalent to CSTA. And basically he said that, was it a black and Latinx kids can't make music as well on like piano and guitar, I think, as white kids? And music theory. Yeah. When they, for him to ask for him to clarify that and to engage in conversation about it, he got up and left. Yeah, like physically left the room. Yeah. And maybe that's like a totally different situation. But I guess the point I'm making is that, you know, whatever you say or whatever is said in the space, you know, don't get up and leave because you're uncomfortable. But you have to remember that people of color are uncomfortable 24 7, 365 days, 366 days in a leap year. (laughs) We don't (laughs) we don't get a chance to. To turn it off or to dim it. Right. And two, a lot of people here, even in these courses, white students, it's hard. For some reason, it's challenging for many of them to understand these simple, what I believe to be simple things. And maybe it's because their privilege and even their white fragility gets in the way. And I've learned to address it, but I'll say, you know what? Okay, it's not about you. It really isn't about you. And it's tough in the course that I teach because I'm like, my colleagues and I in this university, we have four to five years to equip you with as many tools beyond just teaching music concepts to guide into the profession and to provide a socially just learning space for the students you will engage. And if I am not 
on my game and being as tough on you as possible, not for the sake of being tough, but to create scenarios that forces you to think and forces you to be outside of your comfort zone, whatever that might be. If I don't do that, then I fail. And I'm just as guilty as the system itself. Many students, they squirm in the class a lot because I just, I feel like so many people have waited on us to get this thing right for decades, for centuries, and we have yet to step up to the plate to do it. And I just don't want to be a part of the problem. Yeah, I know there's this interesting phenomenon that I've kind of just been aware of in the last decade or so is conversations about race typically happen from one white person to another white person, but not necessarily a white person with a person of color. And it is just it kind of fascinating that like all of a sudden, as soon as like a black person walks in the room, oh, can't talk about that subject area. It's like, well, why not? Yeah. Why is it all of a sudden that you're avoiding the topic and you're only talking to people who aren't experiencing systemic racism and whatnot? Or it's another way too. folks are looking for people of color to clean the mess up. You've also mentioned like several scholars and whatnot. Do you have any others in particular that you want to mention? I've really been digging into Adrian Dixon's work. Mm-hmm. Recently, some of that has to do with the fact that I've had the opportunity and the pleasure of working alongside her. She's an excellent scholar. She does a lot of, man, wonderful things in New Orleans. She's from New Orleans. Her first degree was actually in music. She went to an HBCU, Southern University. But her work has to do with critical race theory, topics on race, racism, culturally relevant pedagogy. She just wrote this, well, not just wrote. I just discovered it, which I'm kind of mad that I'm just now (laughs) reading it. (laughs) But she's written so much stuff. It's this uh, piece she wrote called Expanding the Metaphor, Jazz as Portraiture or something like that. It was written in 2005. And she uses jazz as a means to talk about hegemonic structures, but she talks about jazz as a pool of methodology and research on issues of race and racism. It's, it's a cool piece, man. Hmm. She's just brilliant. And by the way, most of the things that I'm mentioning, at least for me as a scholar, the work outside of music education in places like sociology, education, those are the places where I get my inspiration from and where I get a lot of resources from. Because I feel like even though there's some good work done in music education, it's no shade to our profession, but it is what it is. Right. A lot of it seems to be sort of flushed out or thinned out by the time it gets to music ed. And by the time it comes to our profession, it's a day late and a dollar short. Yeah. Same with computer science. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Adrian Dixon. Did I mention Kevin Brown? He's at Indiana University in the School of Law. He does some stuff, even though it's within the framing of law, it's still pretty doggone impressive and still powerful. Check out Amiri Baraka. I try to read various things outside of music education. Those are the things that seem to really, really get me going. 
Yeah, I'm the same way. On the podcast, I've recommended several times to read outside of the field. Like you mentioned sociology. So when you're talking about Adrian Dixon, you mentioned hegemonic influences or hegemony. So for people who like haven't read Foucault and like don't know what the structure of structures is, like what, how would you describe hegemony? To me, when I look at it, it's like how it is a structure that is completely dominated by a particular group, not just group of people, but how how they think, how they act. So one of the examples that I use when I go out and I'm talking to like various music ed students at different universities, I talk about, believe it or not, the Lord of the Rings, the Shire. (laughs) And I promise you I'm going, it's going to make sense. (laughs) But, you know, for those of us who have seen the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, you know, when we think about the Shire, you know, just imagine that place. Imagine the people, imagine the sort of interactions that take place, the buildings, the shapes, the knobs of the doors, the height of the homes. That space was built with a certain people in mind. Mm-hmm. And not just with them in mind, so that they can be successful in that space. Well, if you recall them, I forget which sequel it was, but Gandalf which was the gray wizard, he comes to visit Bilbo and Bilbo has the ring. Well, Bilbo lives in a home in the Shire. And once Gandalf enters into his home, what happens? Gandalf is trying to situate himself in that very small space. Why? Because it wasn't built with him in mind. Right. You know, he's walking through, he busts his head on the ceiling in the chandelier. And he's trying to, you know, get some sort of sense of where he is and how to negotiate it. To me, that's what it is. Not only was it created with the certain people in mind by the individuals themselves, but it is maintained in a way so that those individuals alone solely will benefit and be successful. Anyone else outside of that, it's not built for you. And so I think that's the trouble with education. When we look at our music programs, whether they be K through 12 or undergraduate or graduate degree programs, all these things were built with a particular group of people in mind. Right. It's funny. People like, I wonder why, you know, certain students just can't make it in here. And I want to raise my hand every time and say, "Uh, duh, because this was built for people like you. Right. And so for like computer science people, an example of this, it's talked about in relation to like algorithmic bias. So hegemony, like in terms of facial recognition designed by white people for white people works for white people. But then as soon as like a black person uses facial recognition technology, the like the success rate drops to like the teens or 10% in terms of like how well it can work or even just like little stuff like being able to turn on and off like a water faucet using infrared technology, like those were all designed for certain kinds of peoples and excluded others, either intentionally or unintentionally through the bias and the algorithm. It's funny you're talking about that in terms of technology and computers. I just started reading this book that Adrian Dixon suggested. It's called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Gym Code. It's by Ruha Benjamin. I just started reading that. It's a fascinating book. 
and it's talking about all these how these various sorts of computers and software and social media it's crazy I'm always into reading stuff outside of music ed because it forces me or anybody else to think about what we're doing in a much broader, more creative way. What other research do you wish there was out there that could like help you or just inform your own practices? Like what's missing? It's hard to say because so much is missing. Matter of fact, I was talking with a good buddy of mine who is a sociologist, but she's also a secret service. She works with the secret service. And we were talking about missing information, or shall I say, it was, it's not missing, it's just hidden. Like I'm working on a piece right now called Straight No Chaser and Unsung Blues. Well, actually I'm not working on it. I submitted it to the Critical Race Theory Handbook that Adrian Dixon and Marvin Lynn are editing, the second edition. And I talk about the missing voice and I talk about how I define an unsung blues in that piece. It's like people are able to tell the stories of others and these stories don't even belong to them, you know? And so there's an injustice in that and the lack of scholarship period about people of color. It is unreal of the lack of just stories about Black folks and other people of color in music. It is unreal. Like all the stuff that I'm talking about and I talked about in this conversation, I learned in the last few years of my career. I didn't learn it in K through 12. I didn't learn it in my undergrad because it wasn't a part of the curriculum or even my master's. There's so much missing. And I think too, all this has to do with ethics. It's hugely unethical. It is hypocritical, all those things. And here's the thing too, who's going to do the work? Right. I think I'm one of nine Black music ed at any predominantly white institution in the country. And not all of us do the same work. So there will always be until music education and education in general begin to seriously and intently commit themselves to real anti-racist work, white folks will always tell our stories. White people will always do the anti-racist work, the work on race and racism. And the stories will always come up short. They will always be lack of nuance. Yeah, I'm working on a project for the state of Wyoming for the Wind River Reservation that has the Northern Arapahoe Eastern Shoshone tribes on there. And the amount of stuff that I've learned in the last few months that I did not learn in school, it's appalling. And to see people online complaining about, oh, well, you're tearing down statues, you're getting rid of our history. And it's like, you have no idea how ironic that sounds, considering the amount of whitewashing we have done, and the amount of stories that have been just like completely erased from history in the last few hundred years. It's unreal. This country has been one of the most successful colonizers in modern history. I mean, I mean, really. And like you said, people have the audacity to say, why are you tearing down Christopher Columbus? Well, first off, he didn't discover anything. Well, he didn't discover America. Just the narrative and the, the values and ideals that they supported contradict what we claim today to be important. You know, this idea of inclusivity and equality and, you know, equitable access. So it's, it's unreal, Jared. 
Yeah, and the colonization is not just like colonizing the physical location and people. It's like the epistemological, the ontological, the axiological, like so the the ways of knowing, the ways of being, and the like the values that uh, people have, like that form of colonization that people don't seem to think about enough. Yeah, I'll send you this clip, but it's it's titled "We Can't Win," and it's an interview of this woman speaking to the protest, the looting and the rioting. And she's talking about, she's, she's actually really talking about hegemony. Her example of it, she's talking about Rosewood and Tulsa and how, you know, Black Wall Street was literally just bombed to hell. And every sort of big movement, if you will, on the behalf of Black folks towards, you know, justice in this country has been bombed or has been put to kaput by white terrorist organizations or even the government, she talks about this within the context of the game Monopoly. And when I tell you she was brilliant explaining that, and I'm like, for anybody who has who sees this, and, and if you walk away like, you know, completely, you have no idea what she was talking about, you should just go to sleep forever because she did an excellent job of explaining hegemony within America. And she said, you know, the thing is that when we came to this country, you know, we weren't allowed to play the game. Matter of fact, everything was was taken away from us, our stories, our sense of belonging, our language, our means to communicate, our sense, our value, our sense of being human, right? because it was all to restructure the frame of mind towards us thinking of ourselves as property. And then you have the reconstruction, the reconstruction failed, emancipation proclamation, all that stuff. But then, so we are quote unquote allowed to play the game, but we don't own anything because we're essentially playing for other people. And when we win, whatever we have in our pockets, we have to give to the people. So we have nothing. It's insidious. It was a doctoral student here. Well, not was. He still work. I think he's working on his dissertation at Music Ed. We were reading, I think, a piece by Adrian Dixon called Locking the Doors Before We Have the Keys or something like that. But it had to do with post-Katrina and education in New Orleans with the charter schools. And she used critical race theory as a framework to look at these events and so on and so forth. Well, this student white student who's also a member of the LGBTQ plus community. He was so shocked and taken back after reading it because he had never really read up on how people use critical race theory to really highlight how truly insidious racism has been used to suppress people of color. He had no idea how diabolical people really are and how people use education as a means to put money in their pocket and to further oppress other folk. Yeah, he was just, I wish you could have seen his face. He was literally speechless in doctoral seminar. Yeah, it's one of those things where once your eyes have been open to the systems of oppression and violence, just you can't close them again. You can't unsee what you see. And as somebody who researches this day in and day out, and talks about the very heavy topics and then lives a double conscious life. Like, how do you 
take care of yourself and like prevent that burnout and the just overwhelm or frustration that can come with that? Listen, had I known about the burnout and about the the sort of hurt or bitterness or the ups and downs that I would have to endure, not to say that I would not do this work, but I would have tried to plan early on. It's rough. I have to say, it's one thing to live it, but then to live it and also research it and it be on your laptop in front of you. You're living your life, but you're also looking at the lives of others and all these injustices. When I was writing my dissertation, it was one of the most challenging things I had done in my life. And I've done a lot of stuff. My dissertation was qualitative, so I had a lot of interviews. So it's one thing to sit there and to engage in conversation with the participants in the study. But it's another thing to constantly sit there with the data and it's in your hands and it's, it's also a part of you. It's like living a bad dream over and over. I've found some ways to deal with it. One is that when I'm done for the day, I'm done for the day. And I've just recently been doing this within the last two years. I think being organized and having a set schedule helps. And also, you know, getting sleep, exercising, and these would seem like pretty standard things to do. But some of this work is so crippling that you don't even want to wake up and do it. Some of my colleagues through NAFME, National Association for Music Education, their organization, some people contacted me about doing some work this summer, like webinars on talking race and music education. And I turned down every last one of those for my health because I needed a break in some way, shape or form. It's real. Like this work is heavy. Yeah. And you don't have, like you said, you don't have that light switch because one, you live it. And then two, it's your career. Like it's just a constant thing. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I'm actually pretty new. I'm quote unquote, a young scholar in comparison to others who have been in the field for a while or a junior scholar in comparison to someone like Dr. Gloria Lassen Billings or Delgado or Sir Lozano. And so one of the things I've been doing is surrounding myself with folks who do this work, but who also, who negotiate similar obstacles daily so that I can ask questions like, how is it that you're able to do this? And surprisingly, I'm still able to smile. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and especially now every day, every day it's something. Every day it's this black person over here was hung or, you know, this person was shot and killed with 16 shots in the back. And, or you got, you know, a university who has hidden away, has protected this particular professor who is a racist and yada, yada, yada. But That's part of the reason why I truly am so honored to know somebody like Adrienne Dixon, because she intentionally and purposefully makes it so that scholars like myself can be supported by folks like her. Like she'll have weekend writing workshops and she'll invite me over or like she's invited me to do projects with her. And it's just nice because I can ask questions and say, how do you do this? How is it, how is it that you're able to crack jokes? I mean, I still crack jokes. 
And I'm not trying to say that <laughs> no one should do this work, but it is tough. And it's hard to really do the self-care thing or to even share what it's like with your colleagues. I'm the only Black person in my department and one of five in the School of Music here. One of the reasons why I love to ask this question on the podcast is it's something that people need to talk about more, and it's something that we need to get comfortable with. Like, my wife is a music therapist in a children's hospital, and like maybe on average one or two kids a week die, and she's in the room and provides therapy to the family after the death, etc. So like, to kind of have that kind of heaviness you need to have some methods or tools to kind of process emotions or stress or whatever. And I just think it's an important thing that more people need to talk about. So I'm grateful that you shared that. Yeah, absolutely. Every day is a shock to me that I'm still here. Not to say that I'm going to, you know, take my life because I know there are people who struggle with that reality every day. I'm just shocked that I'm still doing this because the reality of it is racism is going to exist for a very, very long time, for centuries after we have departed this world. And I know that to be true, but yet I'm still here doing the work. And so there's no end goal for me. There are scientists who can actually create the cure for cancer, right? But racism, there's no end goal right now. And so it's all about doing what we can in however many ways we can to one, really stand up to it and call it for what it is, but to also start really attacking this thing. So I, that's why I'm shocked I'm still here because there are days that, Jared, I do want to give up. There are some days where I'm like, man, I wish I could write about quarter notes and... and note vibrations and intonation you know but but then I tell myself either I found this or this work found me I don't know which one it is but I'm here nonetheless it's a hard road man so thinking broadly are there any questions either for myself or for other educators or researchers that you have you know, I'm always curious, and maybe this is not a question for you. Maybe it's a question for all of us. What are people's true motivations for, for what they do every day? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that has helped me to, to sort of stick around is to understand people's motivations for doing what they do and the work that they do. And so I'm just wondering how people manage, how people stay afloat in all of this. And maybe that's like a question for us to think about. Sometimes I feel like I have nothing to suggest except just hold on. Everybody just hold on. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a good question to reflect on. So where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? Okay, I've been working on this, Jared. (laughs) Because people have been asking me, how do I connect with you? And I've been terrible about having you know, things online. So I actually have a website. If you want to check out my website, it's JoyceMcCall.com. I just started putting things up. Eventually I'll start a podcast. My email address here at the university is J-M-M-C-C-A-L-L at illinois.edu. If you go to my website, 
you know, bear with me, don't laugh. <laughs> it looks okay, but it's coming along. And I actually have a tab on there that says part of my progress. So bear with me. <laughs> and with that, that concludes this week's episode of the CSK8 podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And just as a friendly reminder, go to the show notes and you will find plenty of links to papers and scholars who are writing more about critical race theory, double consciousness, and many other topics that were discussed in this particular episode. Stay tuned next week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode where I will talk about CS education research and its implications in the classroom, and then two weeks from now, which will be another interview. I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.